Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Today, we sit down with Tufts University professor Natasha Wariku to talk about her new book that looks at the history and future role, if there is one, of affirmative action in university admissions. She joins EAB's Winnie Lotto to talk about the extent to which anything about university admissions is fair and about whether universities can even deliver on their mission without a diverse enrollment, which brings with it a diversity of thought and lived experiences. Give these folks a listen and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. My name is Winnie Lotto, and I am a Senior College Success Manager for College Greenlight. College Greenlight unites a collective of education advocates to increase college access and completion for underrepresented and historically underserved students. We are powered through CapEx, which is a college search engine for students. And CapEx is part of the Audience Generation Division of EAB. With me today is Natasha Wariku, a professor at Tufts University and an author of several books, including her newest, Is Affirmative Action Fair? The Myth of Equity in College Admissions. Hi, Natasha. How are you? I'm good, Weenie. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, it is our pleasure, Natasha. I want to get to the topic of your book, but first, let's Set some context around why this issue is particularly important for us today as we talk about affirmative action. And as we record this episode, we know that the U.S. Supreme Court is considering the legality of affirmative action in the university admissions policies or practices. There are critics out there that believe that overturning this decades-long precedent will decrease the representation of Black and Hispanic Latino students in higher education. So, a simple question for you, Natasha. Is the sky falling? <laughs> well, um, the sky is not falling, but I do think that this is a really important decision that is going to be made. And I think I hope people are paying close attention because we, you know, we can probably pretty easily predict what's going to happen if this U.S. Supreme Court decides um that uh, race-based affirmative action is no longer um, a lab permissible because you know we have already nine states that have that don't allow affirmative action in their state-funded schools because of either state referenda or um, actions on the legislature, and we see in those states declines in black and Latinx enrollment in higher education, and then knock-on effects on enrollment in graduate programs, in medical school, um, and even a, a, an impact on wages down the line. So, you know, I think the evidence from these states suggests that, you know, uh, a similar thing might happen across the country um, if this ends. But we'll have to wait and see what the Supreme Court says, because I don't think it's a done deal yet. Certainly. And you're correct in that, you know, this isn't necessarily a newer conversation, being that there are, are nine states that have already faced this. I'm curious from your perspective, you know, why haven't people been talking about those nine states? You know, what what keeps us from having a conversation knowing that it's been implemented in nine states? But now that there's a fire burning in, in this conversation, it seems very preliminary for a lot of people who are thinking about affirmative actions and the implications that it can have in their work and their policies. And I, when I say people, I mean, you know, higher education individuals who are working in the enrollment space. Yeah, that's an interesting question because 
my, you know, at first I was like, you're right. Why haven't we been, <laughs> why haven't people been paying attention? And I think, you know, this is a sort of failure of the connection between what researchers are doing and getting the research out there and to like making it understood that, you know, there's actually, this is not an opinion question on whether, uh, what will happen. And of course we don't know. There's a lots of things that are different about these specific states that are different than the country. Will it be different if it's the whole country versus localized and public versus private? So we don't know exactly what will happen, but I think we can better predict. And I think, you know, part of this is our, you know, I, I, this disconnect between what researchers are doing from even the policy world, let alone just like the general conversation. Um, and so, you know, I think we need a lot. I think scholars need to be better about putting our research out there and helping people understand and make sense of it and see how it applies to what's going on in, in the present moment. And also that, um, you know, journalists who are writing about these things also need to be um, connecting with scholars who are who have answers to the questions that they're raising as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you are a perfect example of this, right? You've researched and you've collected information about this affirmative action um, issue and challenge that is out there. And so as we talk today, I'm just curious for you to, you know, help our listeners understand why you wrote your book and what you hope that readers out there might take away from it. Yeah, you know, I I um really at this stage of my career really feel like, you know, one of the reasons that I and I think a lot of um scholars and social scientists in particular go into uh doing research is because we care about justice and change and having an impact on the world. And so, you know, I really try to think about, well, how can I bring not just my own research, but research in general to the public, to kind of to people's attention and, and so that we can have better conversations. And so this book was, um, you know, if I'm honest, there was an, an editor who asked me to write this book. And it was like, um, I, I've talked about it as, you know, when you're, um, when someone asks you on a, on a date and you don't say yes, but you don't say no, it was <laughs> like that. Like I never told him no. But I never said, I mean, it took me a while to say yes. And finally, um, you know, when I really felt like I had something to say and to add to the conversation was when I said yes. And then when, you know, when the U.S. Supreme Court took on this case, it kind of really kind of fast tracked that. I was like, OK, I need to get this done now um, because I I felt like. So much of how we talked about affirmative action just assumed that there was a kind of one best way of admitting students that would just take the quote unquote best young people um, in these competitive processes. And I really felt like that was the wrong way to think about college admissions in general and affirmative action was getting caught up in that. And so I really you know, wanted to change the way people think about um, affirmative action, fairness and college admissions in general um, through, you know, through the argument that I make in the book. And then along the way, I also just wanted to create a primer, um, on affirmative action. It's funny now because of the, the Supreme court case, I have three kids and two of them have come home in the last few weeks and been like, Oh, we talked about affirmative action in school today. And, um, you know, there's a part of me that's like, can I give your teacher a copy of my book? Cause I think you got to sign it. And I, I tried to write it in very simple, plain language um, that, you know, I think a, a high school student certainly could understand um, to both to break down. Well, what are the arguments that people make for and against it? And what is the data? You know, going back to that question about data, what does the research tell us about these questions? What do we already know? So it's not just a like 
I have this opinion and it's based on nothing, but like, let me look at the evidence and then, you know, see what I think. And along the way, I also, again, try to, so, you know, both present those arguments, but then make, say that, you know, actually we need to rethink how we talk about college admissions. This is not a, you know, we should stop thinking about it, it as an individual certification of merit that we're kind of lining all these 18 year olds up from quote unquote best to quote unquote worst. And right. we're taking the top ones. And if one of them says they don't want to come, we go down the list. That's not really how college admissions works. And it's not how it should work. And, you know, could we even do that if we wanted to? Like, what does that mean? Because there are so many different kinds of things that colleges um, are looking for. Um, we have so many different kinds of strengths um, among us. And there's so many amazing eight young 18 year olds out there. So, and, you know, to try to say you deserve this and you don't, to me, that does that sort of um, a problematic way of looking at it because, you know, I think anyone, like so many people are deserving, but there's not enough space for um, for the amount of people who who want to study at these universities. Yeah, take us take us through that last comment. There's not enough space or there's not a lot of space in those universities. What universities are we talking about? Yeah. I know that, you know, in this conversation, especially your point talking about how there's so much nuance and multifaceted approach to how selection happens in the higher ed enrollment space. I think giving more access to this allows for everyone or anyone who is supporting students in this process to understand that this is an actual profession. You know, this is a profession in which individuals are helping to make those decisions to help reflect that institution student population, correct? And so as we talk about this, it is very rare that people see the depth of the way that admissions officers or enrollment leaders are engaging in this work and that there are policies associated with their work. I think sometimes people see it more as like a popcorn experience. You know, it's just, here's one student and we're going to take them um, or, oh, this is a burnt popcorn. So I'm not sure if this is the one that, you know, we want to select, but there might be a purpose here. Um, Um, And so, yeah, walk us through, you know, what colleges are we talking about or universities in this context? Because there is this conversation of who is truly going to be um, influenced or impacted significantly by um, this this potential decision. Yeah, great. I'm so glad you asked that question, Winnie, because the reality is that most colleges in the United States are not practicing affirmative action because most are not. Um, selective, right? So there's only, you know, a little over 200 colleges that that don't admit anyone who, you know, has a high school degree. So um, most colleges are open admissions and, you know, of the thousands of colleges that exist in the United States. So most students are not going to a college that is selective, right? So we have to always keep that in mind. Um, And um, among those, even the selective colleges that do exist, um, it's just a small percentage that um, are admitting, you know, less than, say, less than half of their applicants. So, you know, Harvard and UNC are um, part of this uh, trial in the U.S. Supreme Court, but they're very unusual. Harvard's admit rate is like I don't know what it is now, like less than 5%, UNC, I think is 20%. That's very unusual. That is a very small number of colleges. And so you, and you, of course, you're you're only making selection decisions when you have more people applying than you have space for. And so those are the only places that we're talking about. Um, And then even, you know, I think you're right, there's this whole profession of college admissions um, uh, counselors. And, 
part of their job in most places is to recruit students, right? And that's how you shape a student body is outreach. And I mean, you, you've you been doing this work, so you know about this, right? It's about like letting students know, under students who are underrepresented on your college, who, you know, don't know anybody who has either gone to college or going to that college or gone to a four-year college to say, hey, you know, you might look, based on your grades, you might think about coming here and here's what you could do and here's what this would get you and here's how you might be able to afford this, right? Here's what financial aid is like, here's what you would need to do. And so I think that's a lot, that's actually probably more of a college admissions work than this like system of we have 20 students applying for one spot um, in our college, which is a very different kind of job, even though they're both called college admissions counselors. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up, that, um, you know, it, it varies a lot depending on which college we're talking about. Absolutely. In my experience, I have worked at two selective institutions, one highly selective and one selective. And what's unique about selective institutions is that they do often talk about a holistic process. And so this is where we do get into this conversation about race-based evaluation. Yeah. Because when you're looking at a holistic approach, you want to take different elements and consider that, but there is no rule or regulation on which identifiers are weighted more in the process. And so on the contrary, we always talk about testing and that we are informing institutions to realize that, you know, testing shouldn't be the end all be all in your decision making. But here we are having a conversation about those who are eventually making that decision. And is that decision fully weighted on race as students are, you know, disclosing to you as an institution? So it is very complicated. You know, you want individuals or students to be able to say, not only am I this race or ethnicity, but there are so many other elements to who I am as an individual. And I would only hope that colleges embrace letting students share those multifaceted aspects rather than the prioritization maybe of race and academics when we talk about testing in the way that we've seen that it could be a disadvantage or that's what's arguing at, at this current moment as we think about um, this affirmative action case. Uh, so I really appreciate you answering this question because it's also helping us to think about, you know, what we talked about in this last week. Um, we were talking about your book and you mentioned that the central question of your title is actually the wrong question to be asking, which caught me by surprise. <laughs> so, Natasha, what do you mean by that? So, um, you know, so the title is, is Affirmative Action Fair. We had a lot of discussion about, well, you know, I kept saying to my editor, I don't think this is the right question. And he said, well, you can say that in the book, but let's stick with the title. So I, I eventually agreed to that. And the reason I think it's the wrong question is because it takes an individualist approach, right? It treats college admissions as you know, are, as a, as we are looking at each of you as individuals and deciding, are we um, evalu evaluating you each and in relation to each other in a fair process, right? That's yeah. not how it works, right? And other countries, they do have, you know, um, say your, your score on a national exam determines whether or not you get in and whether you can study a particular subject. That's a very different kind of system. In the U.S., as you mentioned, we have holistic admissions. Um, and it's not about, again, ranking and sorting in an individual meritocracy. It's about, um, as it should be, about this holistic look and trying to create a class, 
right? So one of the, the so the justification that has been allowed in court has been for affirmative action is that it, you know it helps to create a diverse learning and student student body and a diverse learning environment in which everyone benefits. And um, you know, uh, you know, I, I, in the book I talk about how what I think colleges need to do is sort of go back to first principles. What are we doing? What are our goals as an institution? Um, and most colleges and four-year colleges in the United States talk about teaching, they talk about research, and they talk about contributing to society. Mm -hmm. And if we think about those contributions to society in particular, um, you know, it becomes clear that having, um, you know, being part of creating a diverse leadership, because we know that students at these elite colleges go on, often go on to become leaders in society, to um, uh, creating um you know, opportunities, um, which also, you know, if we think about wanting to have a society in which people can um, have to have a fair shot at um, some kind of social mobility or being part of these institutions, for all of these reasons, it seems clear that affirmative action fits with kind of institutional mission. Um, and that that's really the question that we should be asking. And so, you know, just and I think that that's really important that um, stop that we need to stop treating this as if you know, and the implicit, you know, is affirmative action fair? It, the critique, which I think is a problematic critique, is that, oh, well, it's not, quote, it's quote unquote, not fair to white students or to Asian American students. And again, I think that's the wrong way to think about it. It's, it's we, we need to think about, does affirmative action help further college mission? And I think when we think about diverse leadership, again, the learning environment, even, you know, being, um, uh, even when we think about teaching, and I talk about this in the book, it, when we think about the goal of of teaching in colleges, it's very unclear why we try to take the, you know, the, the, the academically strongest students and put them in the most resourced elite colleges, right, which is what we do. And academics, of course, is not the only thing, but, you know, everything being equal, um, we try to take students with, you know, the highest GPA, the highest SAT score that you can, right? And of course, there's the, you know, the higher status colleges have the lowest admit rates and have the most resources to pour into their students' education. But when we think about this, um, maybe those high status places um, should be reserved for students who are the lowest achieving because they can benefit the most from the resources that the colleges have, right? Where are those um, students who perhaps have not had as many educational um, opportunities or for whatever reasons that are going on in their lives have not um, learned as much in high school? Where are they going if they go to college? They go to they tend to go to community college. Um, uh, and, and those community colleges are severely under-resourced. And you know, over the past few decades, we have divested from our community colleges, from our state schools, um, fund, state funding for, you know, the flagship university, all those state universities have gone way down. Um, and so, um, but those are the those are the places, those are the engines of social mobility. So why, you know, if we think about like a Harvard or a Tufts or a UNC, maybe those places should, because they have the resources to actually bring students up to speed in a way that is much harder to do when you have fewer resources. So again, you know, I think that thought, thought experiment forces us to contend with what are we trying to do and how does admission, like what is the point of selecting the students who are already the highest achieving into these highly resourced places? Absolutely. 
Natasha, there are so many great moments and points that you made in in your response. And one that generally stood out to me is talking about an institution's mission. Oftentimes, an institution is pro- profoundly proud of their mission. That's, that's who they are. That sets the standard for who they want to be, who do they want to become. But then you might see some discrepancies of, you know, is this mission fully aligning with the recruitment process, the enrollment process? And here, we're learning about, you know, the challenges that exist in what does your mission actually saying? And is your enrollment and your recruitment satisfying or elevating your mission? And I think oftentimes, too, there are multiple institutions that focus on including this specific word, diverse. And, you know, in the recent hearing, you know, um, it was notable that, you know, the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, you know, during the hearing asked this question of, what is the definition of diversity? And so I'm sure many people are just like, okay, well, we have an answer. But in reality, you know, what is really the true meaning of diverse or a diverse population, diverse learning in a higher education context? And maybe, you know, the second question is, where does diverse go in a world where there might be a decision that upends what we know about affirmative action? Um, any thoughts there about, you know, how institutions should be perceiving this this word or maybe reevaluating what this word might look like in their mission moving forward. Yeah, that's great. You know, I, I will say, just as Thomas, as I listened to him ask over and over again, well, I don't know what diversity means. It was a little, it felt a little disingenuous, like, yes, like, yes you do. <laughs> what it means and you know look like I um I mean even the U.S. Supreme Court when President Biden said I am going to appoint uh, a black woman to the court and that is diversity right he recognized that diversity you know our identities shape our lived experiences with then shape our you know our understanding of the law and you know to her I mean I, I will say that in that hearing Justice Jackson, she made her perspective was so clarifying. And I think that her bio, you know, her obviously her expertise and her, you know, um, intellectual prowess, like, you know, were clear, but also her own lived experience, I think, was part of that. And um, I think that's very clear. And so um, I I hope that Justice Thomas appreciates that. that, that diversity on the court and in, in his own work and, you know, and also diversity of like, you know, he's a black man with very conservative views and that, you know, there are, you know, there is diversity among black Americans as, as well, of course. Um, and that is, you know, that, that, that is part of diversity too. And I, so I think, you know, diversity, I think the way that diversity has come to be talked about in, in, in college admissions has been, kind of shaped by the U.S. Supreme Court, the 1978 um, Bakke decision in which Justice Powell said, well, you can, you could um, uh, consider race uh, in college admissions through a holistic process, as long as it's not like a quota, if you are doing it in order to create a diverse learning environment, right, which is to say that everybody benefits because there's a diversity of perspectives in the classroom and the dorm and, you know, everyone's worldview gets expanded through that, including white students. And, you know, and I think today that would also apply to Asian Americans who are in 
much smaller numbers in the 1970s. And so um, so I think that's the way it gets used. And actually, you know, it's funny because in my book, The Diversity Bargain, which came out in 2016, um, to, like two weeks after the Trump Trump was elected, um, I actually critique this language of diversity because what I found in interviews with students on Ivy League college campuses was that among white students, there was this sort of implicit um, expectations of their peers who were Black and Latinx and Native American because it was like, well, um, if affirmative action is there to create a diverse learning environment, which I support, and most of them did support it, then, you know, I don't understand why are they all sitting together in the cafeteria? And, you know, of course, not noticing like the other tables of like white students who are are also segregated. And there was an expectation that those, those uh, underrepresented minority uh, students would always integrate into the predominantly white spaces that were the, that largely made up their campus, right? And so, um, and there were other, you know, then there was this also belief that like if affirmative action quote unquote went too far, then it was like what they described as like reverse discrimination. So there were all these problems with only talking about um, racial diversity in terms of this language of diversity. Um, and then Trump was elected and then the Supreme Court changed. And, and I feel like now we're even just like, worried about losing this diversity rationale even, right? When, you know, I think we, my wish is that we we are able to talk much more about justice, about equity um, in ways that just seem to be off the table right now in the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and so, so yeah, let me stop there. <laughs> so I've asked about the word diversity. I call it a diversity bargain. Um, well, I mean, it's just such an important conversation here. I think it is often that one has this assumption, assumption, excuse me, but in a implicit assumption, like you said, that race is the central focus of diversity. And I think back to the moments when I was a recruiter myself and standing at a table representing my institution and at a diverse you know, high school, because there are some high schools, when we think about diversity, that are homogeneously a single race. And so there is that component as well. But say I'm at that high school doing a fair and the students come up to my table and the first question is, how diverse is your institution? Sometimes I would challenge the student to ask him or ask them, you know, what do you mean by diversity? Yeah. What are you particularly looking for? Oftentimes yeah. it would be students saying, you know, I am looking to understand, you know, is this a predominantly white institution? As I identify as a person of color, you know, I'm trying to figure out if this is a place that I will have a sense of belonging. Whereas when I'm working with our college partners, I help them think beyond race and ethnicity because we understand that there are racial undertones even in the way that we talk about admission. So I ask institutions to think about this concept of first-generation students because it doesn't have to focus on race. Socioeconomic status doesn't have to focus on race. Neurodiversity also doesn't have to focus on race. And so how can we start, you know, having more of an equitable language towards diversity that helps not only the students who are seeking to go to like college um, understand diversity, but also the institutions 
attention so that they can, you know, think about being prideful of that diversity of thought. You know, how is diversity of thought reflected in race? Like ask those questions in terms of saying, does this reflect back to diversity? Does this reflect back to race and ethnicity? Because sometimes we like to correlate, you know, specific entities or representations of an individual um, to their race or to their lived experience. But I think we can we can separate it a little bit more and be more intentional. But I recognize, you know, one of the challenges with enrollment in highly selective institutions is that the admissions process is a fast process. It's highly cyclical. And so as you think about the pace of doing the work and being intentional about the work, that can also intervene with the process of selection. And so as I think about, you know, this next question, um, I want to talk about bias because the selectivity piece here is what ultimately leads to this decision making, which ultimately helps us, you know, realize that race can be part of that decision making for some institutions. And so what do you think or what do you believe that um, bias, what role bias plays in this conversation about selection for students who are considering some of these highly selective institutions? Um, so do you mean bias in terms of like the decision makers and how they're sort of, yeah. Yeah, yes. I mean, I, unconscious I, bias, um, just thinking yeah. about, you know, who is evaluating the student and actually making that decision versus the recruiter. Sometimes the recruiter can also be the decision maker at some of these highly selective institutions, but bias can play a role here. So uh, what what do you think to the extent bias can play a role in this decision making? Yeah, I mean, so it it would hard it would be hard for me to believe that bias doesn't play a role because we 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 know from the research on implicit racial bias that um that uh you know implicit racial bias is pretty rampant and uh, you know a lot of that research is looking at black white bias um but there's some newer research on you know Asian American like other racial groups as well and so you know I I I wrote this paper with some co colleagues who are social psychologists and we named it that was about teachers and we named it teachers are people too right that like and admissions officers are people too so there's no reason to think that they would be any less biased than the general population where we we see these these um these patterns and you know I, I think uh, the the potential for um, anti-Asian kind of bias in that that personal rating was in the news a lot. Um, and I, you know, I believe that there could be something there. Um, it's not my biggest concern because um, because of the numbers, but I think it's something the colleges need to look at. But, you know, I think what was missing in that conversation is, you know, there's probably probably anti-Black bias, anti-working class bias um, in these decisions as well. Um, maybe those get compensated for through affirmative action, but, I, you know, it's 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 hard to believe that they don't exist. Um, I just want to say one last thing, though, about what you said earlier, because I think it's really important about, you know, thinking about diversity. Um, I, I hope that, like, people don't lose this irony that all of these things that colleges do that that do tend to privilege white applicants, um, like athletic recruiting, like legacy admissions, um, uh, all kind, you know, private schools tend to see have a leg up because they have relationships with admissions officers. All of these things um, 
are not subject to, you know, what's legally called strict scrutiny, right? So colleges are allowed to do those things, even if they're found to favor white students over all students of color. Um, and But race, ironically, we have laws in place to protect, that were put in place to protect African Americans, given our horrible history of racial exclusion, slavery, racial segregation, are now being used to limit um, compensation for the, the ongoing impact of those policies. And uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, you know, coming back to Judge Jackson, she said it so well in the UNC case, um, where she was like, you know, are you telling me, she said to the plaintiff, that a person who was like, says to the admissions office, I'm fifth generation, you know, five generations of men, because it used to be only men, um, and my family went to this university, and I want to honor their legacy by being admitted. And you have a similar student with a similar kind of, you know, CV, but who is African-American and says, my family has lived in North Carolina for five generations. My ancestors were not allowed to go to this university because of racial segregation, I would like you to honor their legacy. I would like to honor their legacy by being the first one in my family to go to this college. And she said, are you telling me that the former is okay and not the latter? And he said, yes. And to me, that is just so symbolic of like, what are we doing here? We're saying that this is okay, but that is not okay. And I think when she put it like that, it becomes so clear that, you know, it's not that like, if you end race-based affirmative action, all those other things are still going to exist, right? Absolutely. And so um, I, I think, again, I just don't want people to lose that irony of like ending Absolutely. the uh, excluding the one um, uh, thing that has, you know, that has actually been a source of racial exclusion um, in college admissions. Absolutely. You are just spot on, <laughs> Natasha, um, in your evaluation of this. And as we think forward, you know, for the listeners out there and our higher education enrollment leaders, you know, in this last question, what should they be considering as they prepare for the ruling either way? You know, yeah. we aren't experts, but we are doing this work in terms of identifying the potential, you know, solutions that could, you know, support institutions in their next policies and the valuations, et cetera. But what, what can we do in this moment and what can you say to help encourage these institutions to start preparing for either direction in the ruling? Yeah. Well, first let me say, I don't think it's necessarily like a yes or a no uh, ruling that we're going to get. If there, there, there's probably going to be at least some kind of scaling back if not a total, you know, we don't even know, like, what would that mean if you can't consider race? Like, are people not allowed to talk about race? And I don't think that's going to happen. And even the plaintiffs said, um, um, SFFA said, well, you know, no, someone could talk about how they've experienced racial discrimination or how, you know, um, their ethnic background has shaped their lived experience. And so I don't think there's going to be erasure of um, um, racial identity. But I think, you know, colleges need to think about, well, what are we trying to do and what is our mission? And so, and really think broadly, like I, I you know, I, I, I see the move away from the SAT as a positive move, right? That we're realizing, well, wh why are we considering this test and what is this doing to our student body? But it's important to consider, well, what are we replacing it with, right? If you're replacing it with you know, exactly. were you on the crew team? Well, that's not, that's probably worse. And I mean, you know, not the crew team, but you know what I mean? And so I think that really thinking about what are we trying to do here? And, you know, think creatively about creating diversity. And I, you know, like, think about what neighborhood people live in. Um, 
we need to do the, the elites need to do a lot better with class diversity um mm -hmm. and you know really kind of doubling down on that thinking about people's lived experiences and so i think there's other ways to consider as you said like diversity is not just race all these other facets and build that into the application process and signal that as a value and um you know think about selecting students on those bases um as as you know as you think about Wait, you know, the decision is going to happen in May or June. And then I know these admissions officers have to go to work that fall and be ready yes. to implement whatever, whatever they're told. So um, Absolutely. I don't envy people in that <laughs> job right now, but Absolutely. I admire it. Yes. I mean, ultimately they're doing great work. You yes. know, access Absolutely. to education is just deeply important, especially for the students that we're talking about here, Absolutely. you know? And so for these highly selective institutions, you're right. They have to start thinking about narrative shifting. Narrative shifting is not a responsibility of the student, as I think a lot of this is played on. It's the student's responsibility to be able to, you know, either be so specific about their lived experience or their race and their ethnicity, but also these decision making makers in the admissions world also need to be representative to help contextualize what they might be reviewing. And I think if we have more diverse, you know, admissions professionals, that can also help because contextually we are able to do that. We are able to provide nuance. Bias doesn't always have to be a negative thing. It can be positive. And so how can we learn to embrace making our unconscious bias conscious, but then helping us to inform why are we making this decision to select a student or groupings of students? And so Natasha, I could be, you know, talking to you for hours about this work. Your work is deeply important, and I'm sure the students who get to engage with you are deeply thankful for your leadership and your education that you provide for them. Um, but we're just about out of time. And where would you recommend our listeners go to learn more or better yet, purchase your book, Is Affirmative Action Fair, The Myth of Equity in College Admissions? Well, first, let me say the feeling is mutual. It's been great talking to you, and I really admire the work that you're doing at Greenlight and EAB as well. So thank you so much for having me. Um, and folks, if, are, if folks want to read um, my book, is Affirmative Action Fair, you can get it at bookshop.org, um, which supports independent bookstores. Obviously, it's on Amazon as well or Polity Press um, as well. So and um, I will maybe I'll, I'll send we have a, um, a publisher's discount code and I'll, I'll send that to you so you can um, list that as well. Um, so thank you for having me and for to listeners out there for listening. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that information of how our listeners can um, find and purchase your book. Addis additionally, for our listeners out there, EAB just recently published a blog post, the Supreme Court Affirmative Action Hearing, a guide for the overwhelmed. So if you would like some additional resources and reading to, to in, engage with and have in addition to Natasha's book, um, feel free to do so. Um, but thank you again, Natasha, for taking your time today to speak with us and and join the EAB Office Hours <laughs> podcast. We really appreciate you for, for this time. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week when we examine the problem of faculty burnout. Until next week, thank you for your time.